So uh, it's all about faith. That's really what the book of Hebrews has been talking about. It's all about faith, and faith is all about focus. And if anybody needed to have the right focus, it was that first century community of Christian Jews, Jews who had converted to Christianity by faith alone and Christ alone, that were facing some difficult times. And um, of course, we need the same thing today. I mean, really, believers throughout the church age have uh, been called to trust God in good times and bad. On the night of January 29, 1982, Stephen Callahan set sail alone in his fairly small sailboat from the Canary Islands bound for the Caribbean. One week later, on February 5th, his ship sank in a storm, and it left to Callahan alone in the Atlantic in nothing but a five-and-a-half-foot inflatable rubber raft with three pounds of food, a few pieces of gear, and eight pints of water. He drifted for 76 days over 1,800 miles of ocean before he finally reached land in the Bahamas and was rescued. He tells his story in the New York Times bestseller, Adrift, and it tells the gut-wrenching tale of his extreme mental toughness that helped him survive at sea. I've not read the book, but in reading sort of a synopsis of it, I found it interesting what, what he did. He, he said he he divided his mind, really, into two characters. And he had a, a captain character and a crewman character. And the captain would tell him what he's got to do to stay alive. And then the crewman would push back and beg to give in to his fears and do what his emotions dictated. And in the end, the captain won. The rations lasted and the necessary uh, things took place and he was able to finally make it to land and survive the ordeal. Now, I don't know if Steve Callahan was a believer uh, or not, but I, I know that that story illustrates a biblical principle. Life on earth, especially during times of suffering, is about focus. And focus is ultimately about faith. We've been calling this series in the book of Hebrews, Unshakable Faith. Trusting God in, in trying times. And last week we uh, talked some more about our heavenly high priest, which is a very important theme that the writer comes back to again and again throughout his letter. He first introduced the notion of Christ as our great high priest in chapter 4, and then he had quite a bit uh, to say about it uh, last week. And we talked about uh, you know, how we, we don't want to wait until you die to go to heaven, that we have a high priest in heaven that we can go to any time. Well, here in chapter 8, which is where we come to this morning, he's going to continue that theme. And we need to remember the, the overarching context because these were believers, you know, like you and I, we had the common bond with them of the Holy Spirit, but who had come out of Judaism, they were very conversant in and familiar with the whole Judaistic priestly system. And what they were contemplating doing at the time he wrote this letter was kind of abandoning the way or abandoning the assembling of themselves together and their fellowship and association with the church and, and going back to their old safe comfort zone of, of Judaism. Mm -hmm. Had nothing to do with their eternal destiny. Uh, believers make poor decisions all the time. And those who had already done so, which he addresses some of them as well, didn't mean they're losing their eternal salvation 
Uh, their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Holy Spirit had taken up residence. They were born again, and their home was secure. But it did mean they were going to be making a mistake and really giving up on a lot of the blessings and rewards that await them. And so the writer writes this letter to challenge those first century believers, and by extension all believers, to keep on keeping on, to maintain your focus. The Jesus who saved you, who shed his blood for you, who died and rose again for your sins, is the same Jesus who can sustain you. And that we need to set our minds on, on things above. So I'm calling this, Home is Where the Heart Is, as we turn to chapter 8. It's, it's a common proverb that's been, as I found out, used for over 200 years. But primarily, it, it, it has a lot of meanings, but primarily it's kind of used in two different ways. In the first place, it has the idea of, you know, your home is made up of the people you love and cherish most. So that's your real home. So you might say, I don't really care where I move so long as we're together. Home is where the heart is, after all, right? But an equally common meaning, and what I'd like us to focus on in Hebrews chapter 8, is this idea that your true home is where your affections are centered. Where, where is your focus? It's kind of similar to Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He said that the thing a person values the most highly is inevitably going to occupy the center of their heart. And the heart, of course, is the, the seat of our mind, will, and emotions. So where's your heart this morning? Where's your focus? Uh, we may never get stranded on a boat out in the middle of the ocean. Lord willing, we won't have to face imprisonment or worse, persecution, the way the first century Jewish Christians did and the way many Christians have for the last 2,000 years. But we still carry with us a certain degree of suffering and burdens and hardships. Where's your focus? In chapter 8, the writer is going to continue to draw attention to this heavenward focus where Christ is. Um, he does this not just to distract us from our earthly troubles, but because it's only in Christ that there are real, tangible uh, commodities, blessings, relief that we can find if we come to Him. Um, based on His continuing discussion of Jesus as our great high priest, I want to take away from chapter 8 four ways that we can uh, sort of turn our heart toward home, specifically heaven. You know, we sung that great old hymn, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. There's a line in there that, I, that caught my attention during the worship practice this morning. When the chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies. Remember what the writer talked about last week in chapter 7? That he's passed through the heavens and is now sitting at the right hand of God. That's what he wants to call the attention to of his readers, us, that our home is beyond the skies, just like we sang about. So what are some implications of having a superior high priest? Last week we talked about how our uh, heavenly priest, Christ, far, is far superior to the earthly priests. He's superior to the Aaronic priesthood and that priesthood, and the Levitical priesthood and all that came with that system. And, of course, he's superior to the Melchizedekan priesthood in whose order he serves because Melchizedek was just a shadow, a foretaste of what Christ would ultimately be. So we need to focus on our heavenly priest. And 
How do we do that? How can we apply the truths that the writer has been talking about? So four ways. Number one, we need to adore this superior high priest. The first way to turn our hearts toward heaven is to worship and adore him, to think about him. The more we think about the Lord Jesus and have our attention set on him, the more our minds will be uh, distracted, if you will, from all of the troubles of earth and instead focused on real solutions. I love how he starts chapter 8. It's kind of the way I might say something in the midst of a long rambling, you know, chasing of a rabbit, you know, which I'm prone to do. He starts out by saying, now, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. It seems like he kind of got into the weeds a little bit, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but really talking about the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek. And, all, and then he's like, okay, look, let, let me bring it, let me rein it back in here. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. And, and chapter 8 really is sort of the so what to chapter 7. And what is it? What is his point? We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. We have a high priest who's better than anything Aaron and his descendants offered. We have a high priest that's better than anything the Levitical system had to offer. We have a high priest who, who, who can be traced back ultimately to Melchizedek, if you will. And he's our priest. He's our priest. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. See the grandiose language there that he's using? He's trying to get the, his readers to say, look, I get it. It's tough. Life stinks sometimes. And this is, these are not small things that you're facing. Some of you have lost family members. Some of you have, are being threatened. I get it. But we have access to the very throne of the majesty of God in, in the heavens through Christ. Remember in chapter 7, he had said, For such a high priest was fitting for us, one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. We talked about all that. Who has become higher than the heavens. We need to adore him. We need to worship him. See, there's a difference between fear and worship. Fear focuses on the surroundings, the circumstances. Fear, represented by the Steve Callahan, the crewman. But captain, don't you, don't you see these waves and the storm? And don't you see I'm only down to my last pint of water? And don't you see I haven't caught anything? He made crude fishing elements and he would go hours and even days without catching anything but eventually he'd catch something with no bait don't you see and then the captain said no we're going to get there stay focused we're going to get there we have such a high priest you know the worship of our savior really who is of course god in the flesh and the writer begins hebrews by with this beautiful description of, of how jesus is the express image of god's glory but from the time he was born of a, of a virgin in Bethlehem and laid in a manger, he was the object of worship. You know, we, we can go back to, say, the wise men, who when they had come into the house, this was sometime after he was born, they didn't come uh, to the manger, but they saw the young child with his mother, and what did they do? They fell down and worshipped him. You know, even the angels, remember, out in the field, we talked about that, how they worshipped him. I think we talked about that on, on our Christmas Eve service. 
And then Jesus, after he began his earthly ministry, remember his discussion with uh, the woman at the well? And uh, she asks him that riddle of, you know, where should we worship, on Mount Gerizim or, um, you know, where the Jews worship, Mount Moriah? You, what's, the, what's the answer here? And notice what he says. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. He goes on to say salvation is of the Jews because, of course, Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham and the one who provides redemption and salvation. Somewhere along the way, from Bethlehem to today, we've sort of lost the significance of worship. And I know Jeff and I have talked about this, and, and, and I'm sure many of you would agree too, but we need to be reminded that worship is not just what we do on Sunday mornings from uh, 10 to 11. And it's certainly not just what Jeff and his talented team of musicians does. <laughs> Worship is what we are called to do, to bring glory to the Lord as we live out our days. I mean, we live in a world bound by sin and corrupted by sin and a world of problems. And so every day we struggle with attitudes, we struggle with temper or frustration or difficulties or stress or worry or fear. That's part of being bound up in flesh and blood. But one solution to that is to become more intentional about worship. And I think when the writer boils it all down here in chapter 8, what he's saying is you need to remember that superior high priest. You need to adore him. Paul put it this way, God highly exalted him. Again, there's that reference. We've looked at several of these a couple of weeks ago uh, about how he's highly exalted. He's passed through the heavens and he's in a different realm. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, someday when we get to heaven, it's going to be all about worship. And one of the most beautiful pictures of worship by the church is in the early stages of the book of Revelation, after the rapture, before the tribulation actually starts. I mentioned this briefly in our Bible study this morning, just because we were talking about the great day of the Lord's wrath and how the Lord has promised to rescue the church before the great day of the Lord's wrath, not before things get tough. They were tough for these Hebrew Christians, and they're tough for many today, and they've been tough for 2,000 years. But in, in Revelation 4 and 5, we read this. Uh, we'll go straight to chapter 5. Uh, the, the, the context here is they're looking for someone to open the scroll of God's wrath. God's about to pour out His wrath on the earth. And we call this a theodicy, a justification for what's about to happen. A theodicy. Who's worthy to open the scroll? And the Lamb is worthy. Jesus Christ, because He shed His blood. And when He, Jesus, had taken the scroll... The four living creatures, angels, angelic beings, probably based on the description similar to the seraphim and cherubim, but, but probably not exactly in that class. Um, in our series on Spirit of the Antichrist, we talked about the classes of angels and demons. And uh, you might, if you're interested, go back and check that out. But these are special angelic beings in a special class by themselves. But they weren't the only ones on the scene. They weren't the only ones surrounding the throne, the 24 elders, that's the church. That's you and me, having been rescued earlier. 
um, experience the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage of the Lamb, and here we are, falling down before the Lamb, praying and worshiping Him. And what do we sing? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He goes on to say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. This is what they were seeing. Can you get the picture there? Millions upon millions, as far as the eye can see, gathered around the throne. We're about to move into the final stages of God's plan of the ages, which a seven-year period on the timeline of eternity is really just a tiny speck, isn't it? But here we are reaching that culmination. The wrath of God's about to be poured out. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I think the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Spirit is trying to, to convey this reminder that this Jesus whom you're contemplating distancing yourselves from is an amazing Lamb of God who took away your sin. When's the last time you worshipped God for redeeming you with His own blood? See, the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more our earthly troubles will seem insignificant. We need to adore that superior high priest. But then he's going to go on and give some practical reminders that we need to access the superior place. He said, he's talked a lot about where Jesus is. that He's not on this uh, world. Look at what he says he, he, in verses 2 through 5. He's He's, his priestly ministry is being conducted from the right hand of the throne of God in the heavenlies. And when we go to Him, when we pray, when we bear our burden, lay our burdens at His feet and share our burdens with Him, we're accessing a superior place. And so the second way to turn your uh, heart toward home, toward heaven, is to pray routinely, regularly, daily, often. Right? He says... He is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected. Not man. This isn't a physical tabernacle made out of wood and nails or whatever they used back then. This isn't anything compared to, you know, a Herod's temple that they, that they in their first century understood, and which, by the way, was about to be destroyed by Rome. This was written in 67 to 69 A.D. By 70 A.D., that temple was destroyed. And a lot of people get all excited today because we know that ultimately, based on the Old Testament prophecies, that Christ is going to rule and reign in a literal temple that Ezekiel describes in great magnificence in Ezekiel 40 to 48. But a lot of people get excited today when they hear about talk of rebuilding the temple. What they don't understand is the temple that people are talking about rebuilding right now is Satan's temple. It's the tribulation temple. It's the one the Antichrist is going to rule and reign from. That temple is going to be utterly destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. It's going to be desecrated. Just remember that the next time you hear people talking about plans to build the temple. That's not Christ's temple. That temple doesn't get built until he comes back and takes the throne. It's one of the reasons there's such a delay that Daniel talks about between the second coming and the official start of the millennial phase of the kingdom with the marriage feast. I'm chasing one of those rabbits that I talked about earlier. But the earthly temple is nothing compared to the true temple. 
Next week, I was looking ahead yesterday afternoon at chapter 8, I mean chapter 9, and we're going to talk about the shadows versus the earthly. I haven't come up with a title yet, but the, the, what he's alluding to here, I'm going to go into more detail in chapter 9. He goes on in verse 4, he says, For if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are already priests who offer gifts according to the law. He's not on earth. We skip chapter 3, but chapter 3 talks about how every priest offers gifts and sacrifices, and it's necessary for this one, capital O, Jesus, to do the same thing, and that's what he's doing at the right hand of God. He's not on earth. He's in heaven. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Talking about those earthly priests. So he's sort of reiterating what he said last that we looked at last week in chapter 7. Um, and notice he says, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Do you understand that even the original tabernacle was built according to a pattern? Who created the pattern? God. Which, by the way, is how he created us. Let us create man in our image. A lot of people misunderstand that. It doesn't mean that we are gods, that he let us create man to be just like us. That's not what he meant. It's let us create man in our image, our possessive, meaning the image that we created. So God in his mind, the eternal triune God, established an image that, would, that, would, that he wanted to make the highest pinnacle of creation, mankind, on the sixth day according to. He didn't spend a lot of time creating images for trees and, you know, oceans and stars and moon. The Bible doesn't say that anyway. He certainly didn't spend much time designing the cat. That's pretty self-evident. <laughs> but he created an image, a set of blueprints that corresponded in so many ways to the image of God in man, that, that is the image of God in man, and then he created man. And he did the same thing with the tabernacle. God in the eternity has an image, has a plan that is eternal. It's not bound by time, space, and matter. It's not temporal. It's not subject to the frailties of human space. It's not uh, humanity. It's not going to be you know, destroyed by air and stuff, right? And so he's reminding them that Moses created the original tabernacle according to a pattern. And even this Levitical and Aaronic priesthood that we talked about, even it's according to a pattern. But guess what? Christ is the real deal. He's not the shadow. He's the reality. And you see this challenge of accessing this superior place, remembering where our home really is. You see this principle repeated again and again through the epistles. Paul said, since, the word if there means since, since you were raised with Christ, Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. See, we read over this and we, we, we just don't catch the significance, I think, sometimes. That the right hand of the throne of God is significant. It's not just some ancillary detail where Christ is and someday he's going to come back. No, he's there for us as our advocate, like we talked about last week. So set your mind on things above. Why? And not on earth, because you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, guess what? Then you also will appear with him in glory. When he says you died, it's, he, he, he says it in greater detail in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, physically. Yet it's, it's not I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when he's talking about how we died, he's talking about living the life of faith and focus in the midst of good times and bad. And so that's why the, the writer of Hebrews said earlier on in the letter, seeing then that we have such a great high priest, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We need to access the, the superior place where Christ is through prayer and regular communication with our Lord. And by the way, if prayer is us communicating our praises and requests and burdens to the Lord, reading the Word of God is His way of communicating to us. Okay. If you're waiting for a handwriting on a wall or a donkey to start speaking or something like that, You've got it right here. You've got everything you need for life and godliness. But there's a third way. Uh, not only adore the superior priest and access the superior place, but appreciate the superior program. He introduces this idea at the beginning of verse 6, and then he's going to talk more about it the rest of this short chapter, chapter 8. But we need to appreciate the superior program. In the present age and, and the age in which the original recipients of this letter lived, remember we share our common bond, we're all part of the church age, all part of the body of Christ, uh, Christ is administering over a superior program in this present age, a superior ministry. Because we live in the church age, we have access to many blessings that are unique to you and I, that Old Testament saints didn't have. And a third way to turn our heart toward heaven is to appreciate, really appreciate these many blessings that come with living in this, this age of mystery, the church age that was previously unrevealed. You know, sometimes we tend to, to have a normalcy bias. We think things have always been this way. But you, know, you read the Bible and biblical history, you recognize that at different times, even, by the way, in the first century during Christ's earthly ministry, because the church wasn't instituted until after Christ had resurrected and ascended. So even during the, the stories we read about in the gospel, those historical events, those people didn't share the same blessings that we share. Neither did the Old Testament uh, uh, Jews and God's people in the Old Testament. And certainly even before Abraham, when you think about Noah's day and Adam and Eve, they don't have the same blessings that we have today. Listen to what he says at the beginning of verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry... His ministry is as our great high priest at the right hand of God. Inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. A better covenant. Now we talked about how the church is a mystery. We mentioned it again in our Bible study hour today. The word mystery is mysterion. It's used 27 times in the New Testament. It just means previously undisclosed revelation. Something new that God is now unveiling. And God's program of the church is... A new, is new information. It is a mystery. Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, we've looked at those passages. In fact, I'll mention Colossians 1 again. I forgot I decided to put this in yesterday. Uh, listen, and we talked about this in Bible study, but listen to it again. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh, Paul says, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So what's he talking about here? The church, the body of Christ, which he then goes on to say is a mystery that was hidden from ages before and generations before, but now has been revealed to us. To them, his saints, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The incredible riches of the glory of this mystery. What is it? 
Ultimately, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have many, many blessings that are associated with this superior program. This was an improvement when those first century Jews trusted Christ and believed the gospel. And for them to abandon their association with the church and go back to Judaism would be to go back to an inferior program. Uh, we could take all day and list blessings of the church age, but here are four of my favorites that I uh, put together earlier this week. First of all, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In uh, Romans, we read that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. He goes on to say, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. I mean, think about that. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence the moment you trusted Christ, and he's there to, forever until we get to heaven. What a unique place that, it, that he's there uh, in the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Boy, I mean, he's, he's interceding for us. He's assuring us. He's convicting us. He's sealing us. He's just encouraging us. He's comforting us. That's what Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse. He's the paraclete, the comforter. I mean, Old Testament saints didn't have that blessing. Holy Spirit was still very active and involved on earth, but he didn't take up personal residence within you or within believers the way he does within you and me. That's a blessing. When you feel the, the encouraging comfort of the Lord or when, when, the, 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 when the verse of Scripture comes to your mind when you're struggling with it, that's the Holy Spirit. That's who's doing that. We also have the blessing of being in Christ, that special intimacy with the Savior and with God. Unlike the way the Old Testament saints interacted with God, which was sort of once removed, we are part of the family of God. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. We have direct access to God. As we said in Hebrews 4, let us come boldly to the throne of God. The veil has been rent in two. We don't have to go through a human mediator. We can go directly to God. And then I love this one. Uh, there, again, there are many others that I could have I mentioned, but this one caught my attention, ethnic unity. I want you to think about this for a moment. Remember, Paul said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Right now, as tumultuous as this world is, there are believers all across the world that we are united with. There are believers in Iran. There are believers in North Korea. There are believers in Russia and China. There are believers in, you know, California, speaking of evil empires. <laughs> see, these, see, see these things go together. Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and California, right? No, there are believers. Every, it doesn't matter the color of their skin. You know, I haven't done a lot of world travel, but I've done some. And when I was in Russia... You know, they looked different. They dressed different. Some of their cultural ways of doing church were different. But you know what? We had a common bond. We had a common bond. You can go anywhere in the world. And if you find a believer, you've got a special bond. That's unique. That's kind of the opposite of what Israel had. Israel was told to go into Canaan and do whatever you can to stay away from those people. You know, don't go near those other people. And, and that's part of God's plan and His purpose. But guess what? Now we are a global people of God. So there are many, many blessings, and we need to appreciate the superior program 
that we are a part of. But finally, he then looks forward in time and says you need to anticipate the superior promise. If you want to sort of turn your heart toward heaven and, 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 and establish a focus on spiritual things, you need to recognize that a better day is coming. Remember the promise of the kingdom. Boy, we've talked a lot about that, haven't we, over the last few weeks in different settings. Don't forget the writer began his letter of Hebrews in chapter 2, I think it's verse 4, by reminding us that he's speaking about the world to come. Remember he said, God has not put the world to come of which I'm speaking in subjection to angels. The overarching principle that, that believers need to remember is that a better day is coming. That this is not all there is to life. The, the church even is not the end-all, be-all of life. The present age is not the end-all, be-all of life. Your life of 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years is not the end-all, be-all of life. It's important, but we and we have a job to do, but it's not the end-all, be-all of life. And that's why I get so animated about uh, the study of the end times and when people say they don't care about the end times. I just want to, you know, punch them in the nose in Jesus' name. You know? <laughs> because... That's what it's all about. That's one-sixth of the Bible pointing to this promise of, of a kingdom. And by thinking about the coming kingdom, we're transporting ourselves to a heavenly home and recognizing that someday that heavenly home is going to come down, reunite with the new earth, and all things are going to be made new, and the Bible will come full circle to the pre-fall Edenic state that it began with. Notice what he says at the end of verse 6. We already said he has obtained a more excellent ministry and is the mediator of a better covenant, but he says, which was established on better promises. Better promises. In other words, essentially what he's saying is not only do you have access to all kinds of incredible blessings now, not only should you be worshiping the one who shed his blood for you, but you haven't seen anything yet. You think these blessings are amazing? Just wait. And I love the way Paul puts it in uh, Romans chapter 11, talking to the Jews about you know, the future for Israel and that there is going to be a future kingdom and the deliverer is going to come out of Zion at the end of chapter 11 there. But he says, now if their fall, talking about Israel's rejection of the Messiah, means riches for the world and their failure riches for Gentiles, how much more their fullness... <laughs> See, the church is just a foretaste of the glory to come. The, the blessings that we're experiencing now are nothing like the full blessings of the new covenant when it's established in the kingdom. We talked about this some weeks ago, God's kingdom program, and how the fulfillment and inauguration of the kingdom program is not till the return of Christ. The covenant program has been ratified. It's all in place, but it hasn't been inaugurated yet. And when Christ comes back, it'll be inaugurated. And he's going to go on and talk about that, that future promise of new covenant blessings. He says in verses 7 and 8, But if that first covenant, talking about the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, this is Jeremiah's promise of a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming. Notice the future tense. Says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the first thing we need to understand is who's the new covenant going to be made with? Not the church, Israel and Judah. Secondly, Jeremiah, 400 years before Christ, was not promising 
or making or announcing the establishment of the new covenant. He was prophesying that someday God will make a new covenant. When was that new covenant ratified? At the cross. It's the reason when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, we say, as Jesus did, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And that's what the writer is saying. This same Jesus who died and rose again for your sins also ratified the new covenant. It's all done. It's all in place. It's all ready. It hasn't been inaugurated yet. And we know that, by the way. I'm not going to... The next nine, verses 9 through 12, I'm not going to put on the screen because it's just a quote verbatim from Jeremiah 31 and the uh, new covenant blessings. But uh, if you read some of the new covenant passages like Jeremiah 31, and, and I'm going to go specifically here to Ezekiel 36, um, you can, there's no way that you can say that what Jeremiah was prophesying is happening today. For example, he says, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your land. Has the nation of Israel supernaturally, as Jesus would later describe in Matthew 24, 31, been gathered from the four corners of the earth and supernaturally in belief been deposited in the land? Not hardly. Not even close. Then he goes on, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a, my spirit, a new spirit within you. I will take a heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Anybody ever sin? Nobody. Wow, you did a great job, John. You, you, I inherited a sinless congregation. Of course we sin, right? So we don't walk in the statutes. So yes, in the present church age, which was a mystery, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't force us to obey. We have to yield to Him. You can quench the Spirit. You can grieve the Spirit. You cannot yield to the Spirit. You cannot walk in the Spirit. Right? When the new covenant's in place, you will walk in my statutes, he says. Uh, Jeremiah says in his description of the new covenant blessings that when that day comes, no one will need to teach his neighbor. Everybody from the least to the greatest throughout the entire globe will know of me, the Lord. Now, that's certainly not true today, and not only that, but it directly contradicts Jesus' great commission that says, go into all the world and teach. So, he's speaking here not of the present age. He's speaking of the promise. He talked about the program. He's, media, he's the mediator of the covenant, and he's our minister at the right hand of God, and we have a better program today, but you ain't seen nothing yet. The promise that Jeremiah talked about is coming, and he closes out the chapter with this verse, in that he says, a new covenant... Notice he has made the first obsolete. That's certainly true. The Mosaic law is done away with. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3. The law was just put in place until Christ came. But notice what he says. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. If the new covenant promise was already in force 30 years into the church age, he would have said had vanished away. It hadn't vanished away. It was ready to vanish away. And is still ready to vanish away, ultimately. So we're in a time of transition. Now a lot of people look at this verse and, and talk about how he was probably talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, possibly. I think that anticipates the future fulfillment. I mean, we know Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 that the temple was going to be destroyed. Daniel did too, by the way. 
So I don't think that, I think it's an overstatement to say that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, a few years after this was written, or a year or so, is the fulfillment of this. I don't think he was speaking of that exclusively. I think he's talking about the full consummation of the new covenant blessings that will come when this king of kings and Lord of Lords comes back and takes the throne. Remember how he started Hebrews. We're not talking about that now. We're talking about the world to come. And that's what he's talking about here. So anticipate the superior promise. So four ways to turn your heart toward heaven. Start out by adoring and worshiping our superior high priest that he talked so much about in the previous chapter. And then access the superior place by boldly coming into the throne room and praying and recognizing that we can take our troubles beyond this earthly realm into the heavenlies. And then appreciate the superior program and the age in which we live and all of the blessings that come with that. And then anticipate the superior promise. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this great reminder from your word about what awaits us and what we have access to even now as we wait. And Lord, as we see indications that the church in our day, even in our own country, may face more and more persecution, possibly very soon, Lord, I pray that we would take heart from letters like the book of Hebrews and passages like chapter 8 that remind us of why we do what we do and where we are and who we are in Christ and, and how ultimately it's about our focus. It's about our focus. It's about faith. Help us not to listen to that conversation within us between the old man, from the old man and the flesh, focusing on the waves and the storm around us and the lack of provision that we may sense, but help us to put our faith and trust in you. Preparing, being wise, and knowledgeable, but yet ultimately to be men and women of faith. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.